The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Collaborations play a critical role in advancing potential treatments for a rare disease and can take many forms. In some cases, they may involve a single researcher engaging with a single patient, while more complex ones may be multi-organizational alliances that include drug developers, academic institutions, and patient advocacy organizations. We spoke to Hans Schlecht, a physician who has conducted research and the father of a son with an ultra-rare disease about the importance of collaborations, how patients can engage researchers, and what they can do to ensure the best returns for their efforts. Hans, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to talk about the importance of collaborations, the role rare disease patients can play in catalyzing research through them, and some of the issues that they may want to think about in doing so. You're a physician. You've performed grant-funded research in the area of infectious disease, but you're also a parent of a child with with a rare condition, which is SYNGAP. What is SYNGAP? How, How rare is it? How well understood is it? And how does it manifest itself? Syngap is a really uh, critical protein for neural development, for the for the human brain to come as to become as complex as it is. Syngap is a, is a major protein, and we have two genes, two Syngap genes, and they both need to be functional, essentially. So it's an autosomal dominant. That means if if there's one hit to one of the two genes, it's a dominant mutation, and the, and the, the, the human, the organism, is, is affected by that. And you hear of other diseases that are recessive, and that means that both genes need to be hit. So, you know, unfortunately for my son, uh, this mutation came out of the blue, um, what's called de novo, so brand new to him, um, and it's essentially an intellectual disability with most of the kids having epilepsy features, derangements in behavior and sleep as well. There's, there's a broad spectrum. Some kids are mildly affected, moderately affected, severely affected, and it's rare. Um, there's only a few hundred cases that are sort of in the literature, in the clinics. There's probably 
more cases than that. They're just not recognized because not everyone has undergone whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing, the sort of deep dive to find it because it doesn't get picked up the same way uh, as other genetic disorders where if there's an extra chromosome or a missing chromosome, it's easier to, to find that with, with testing. How is it treated today? Are, are there available therapies or are children with the condition just treated symptomatically? Yeah, so symptomatically is, is really the bread and butter in the sense of, you know, seizure control and control is, is a tough goal to get to. Um, my little guy has got his, you know, seizure medications twice a day, uh, two of them, and we still see, you know, sort of breakthrough seizures. Um, previously it was, you know, an eye flutter and a head drop. And we still see that eye flutter from time to time. Uh, these are kids that have a, an imbalance, you know, with the Syngap protein and what it does in sort of the balance between excitation and inhibition. So they're fundamentally imbalanced. And when sensation comes in, particularly for my guy, it's his sense of taste you can see he reacts to that. So whether it's an outright seizure or just a, a reaction, um, you know, that our, our goal is to try to limit all these eye flutters. And so far, you know, he hasn't had significant drop seizures, though other children report that. And it is mostly symptom control. The, the docs are, and researchers are trying to find something that, maybe restores the Syngap balance. Um, for what it's worth, uh, my little guy has a nonsense mutation, and there is uh, evidence in, you know, cells and Petri dishes and so forth um, for getting the machinery to read through a nonsense mutation, and we've tried that with an expanded access uh, investigational sort of new drug application. So my little guy started a, a medication called Adalurin, which is, you know, recognizable in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy mm -hmm. world and for kids with nonsense mutations and cystic fibrosis, nonsense mutation. It's, it's something that allows read-through of a nonsense mutation. So if, if a nonsense mutation is a stop sign, you just put a brick on the accelerator and blow right through. Mm -hmm. It's a hope. It's a, it's a hypothesis. There's a lot of controversy around Adalurin, and the FDA has kept saying, you know, we need more data, we need more data. And other parts of the world have said, like the EMEA in, in Europe has said, well, it looks safe. You're not hurting these kids, and they're desperate. So it was approved outright uh, in Europe. South Korea, other countries, and, and the U.S. has wanted more conclusive evidence that it does benefit the kids. So thankfully, the company uh, was open-minded to our request. It, it did take three tries, and, um, you know, that we got approved right around November, December of 2017. And then it goes to the FDA, and they were okay with it, and then it goes to the Boston Children's IRB, and they were okay with it. The long story short, it wasn't until about March of 2018 
just a few days after his birthday, third birthday, that he started on it. I just can't tell you whether it's making a difference. You're not a stranger to the world of academic research. You've had NIH and Gates Foundation grants. For many people in the rare disease world, this can be an area of, of mystery. They can find it intimidating dealing with scientists and perhaps not having an understanding of scientific terms, how research is funded, what it takes to do a study, and, and how they can take steps to meaningfully advance research in a disease of concern. What's the opportunity for patients or parents of patients to help foster research? That's, that's a great question um, and a big one at that. Well, I've, I've spoken once on it at a regional conference, and the, the first thing I emphasize is, um, you know, the easiest topic for a parent to talk about is, is their own story. And, you know, one of the research collaborations that's come up is completely attributable to a parent that I spoke to that, that handed me essentially a handout about their child. On the back side, you know, on the front side was a pictured adorable daughter and a story. And on the back side was her whole exome sequencing. That, that told me about her Syngap mutation. And in fact, she's very mildly affected. She functions at the level of a six-year-old, and she's about 10 years old. And that's intriguing. And she had a couple of other mutations, one of which might, maybe, maybe it's making her Syngap mutation not as severe. Maybe it's offsetting it in some way. So I connected that that family to Dr. Koba, and you know he's working on a sample from her and trying to tease out why maybe she is mildly affected versus my son, who I would project to be more moderate severe, to be frank. Um, so you know having your story at your fingertips. No one says no if you say, can I give you a one piece of paper about my story? So, so that gives you the substrate to talk about research, to, to get a conversation going. Um, because, you know, it's, it's typical in conversation or meeting discussion that, that good ideas come up. Um, and, and if you have one on your own, you want to bounce it off someone. So, so, Bringing your story with you, providing it to others to think about, is is the most basic step that anybody can do without a science background. Essentially, um, from there, it's it's you know finding enthusiastic, dedicated, like uh, you know like-minded folks that are are going to sort of bring you into the conversation. And, and attending those meetings that happen. So the examples there, uh, Danielle Williams in Australia is involved with genetic epilepsy and Syngap and just, just seems to have an boundless energy. So I, I try to communicate with her periodically and find out what's, what she's thinking, what she's talking about. And then Monica Welton established the Bridge the Gap Foundation and has put together uh, what she calls extreme parenting meetups where you go to Baltimore 
you spend the day and the scientists give you presentations to try to cultivate your knowledge base and, and start conversations there. Um, another one was up in Montreal. Um, so, so these are important venues where you can find people that are enthusiastic, where you can share your story, talk about, you know, your version of, of, of their statements and, and, and see what's happening. Um, another, another important part is, is working together towards, towards those goals. Uh, there's a, Bragley, a family out in California who's, you know, trying to move research forward um, and, you know, setting up times to have phone calls, talk things over, see what's intriguing, and, and look at what has been successful in the past in the sense that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you look at the Progeria Foundation, uh, you know, set up, to try and figure out they found a gene, what was their approach. They had a registry, they had a tissue bank, they had a, a sort of research warehouse library for what was going on, and a diagnostics arm. And if you look at that website, they really set up a blueprint that you can look at and say, is the organization I'm, I'm supporting doing the same? Um, is this something that I can promote? And, you know, it, it, it gives you a model of success. It, it strikes me that one of the things that's created an opportunity for rare disease patients to engage researchers is the funding landscape these days, particularly for younger researchers who may be very gifted but may face daunting odds of getting NIH money. What's the opportunity for patients and their families to advance a research agenda? That, that's, that's a great point. Um, you know, finding the, the young researcher starting out who's, who's hungry to, to find a topic and run with it versus the more senior researcher who's, you know, running a lab of, of dozens of people and is, you know, is like on their set track it's it's potentially useful to find that 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 young researcher who's who's needs the support and is you know got open ears and open mind and, um, and it's true I mean the funding environment is it's overly competitive it's it's disappointing to see that um, there isn't more funding at a government level for people who work their tail off for advancing science and and it's not just that the, the that the that the good science is being funded. It, it's the you know there's plenty of good research that's going unfunded because the pay line is six percent for let's say an R01. Um, so so parents, you know, heck, if if you're if 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 you're a Vanderbilt and you've got deep pockets, you can make a lot happen. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can fund a postdoc in somebody's lab. People but, hear about the high cost of drug development that can take excess of a billion dollars to develop a therapy, but in reality, meeting foundational work to do the type of science necessary to identify a potential therapy and bring it to a point where investors or drug companies might step in might, must have a much lower barrier. 
what kinds of money do rare disease advocates need to think about being able to raise? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, you know, the fact is that you have to look around and see if there is something already, let's say, approved that could have a benefit for your rare circumstance. So, so you know, when we got the news for my little guy, I just hit Google and and said, uh, you know, syngap, syngap therapy, rasopathy therapy, nonsense, nonsense mutation therapy, bingo. So then, you know, the irony is that the gold standard for nonsense read-through are the aminoglycoside antibiotics, which I prescribe at work. But I can't justify treating my little guy with, you know, uh, an antibiotic that has kidney failure and, and hearing damage to it. But nonsense mutation is, you know, the calling card for adalurin. So here, just trying to connect dots and, and understanding what was going on at a, at a, at a deeper level, um, you know, put, put a therapy within reach. And then you, you, you say, how do I get my hands on this? And, you know, nowadays there's been enough advocacy over the past 30, 40 years that companies and the FDA do want compassionate use for, you know, the, the really tough cases out there. So, so, that's, so that's one piece of advice in, in trying to find an analogy something similar. Some of the medications nowadays, because we're getting so refined to, on the genetic level, they, they might work in a similar way in different genes, if, if that makes sense. Um, making an exhaustive search for approved or in the pipeline phase three compassionate use, you know, orphan drug approved um, medications is, is, is a priority. After that, you know, then, then you're talking about maybe drugs that are in phase one or early on or in, um, pre-human development, pre-clinical development. That's really challenging to, to get to. Um, you know, the company, pharmaceutical or biotech, is, I think it's appropriate to say, very protective because they've got to make sure that they're doing everything possible, that it's a safe medication with legs to run and, and not run into, you know, uh, uh, an event that, that, that torpedoes that drug's development. Um, and... You know, I, I feel like I don't have enough time in the day to get to everybody, um, you know, and, and the, the emails to write and so forth. So there's a company called Amicus Therapeutics where it was, if I understand the history correctly, a, a, a father who really wanted to pursue enzyme replacement. You hear about, you know, Lorenzo's oil. And a few months ago there was a, a New England Journal of Medicine for um, if you can believe it, a childhood dementia where these kids decline into a dementia. But if you replace that enzyme and just in inject it essentially into their 
their, their brain fluid, the CSF, um, you stop, you arrest their decline, even followed out for 6, 12, 24 months. And, you know, Amicus Therapeutics, I believe, was founded on a father's intent on doing enzyme replacement therapy for his child. And, you know, uh, th- yes, that name does ring a bell. You obviously know the story better than I do. Um, and, you know, I say to myself, is, is enzyme replacement an option for my kid? And I, I talk about it with scientists and it's a big protein. It's how is it going to get in there? And, and so you've got to keep talking and brainstorming and finding analogies. And, and there's, there's a great paper on, um, sort of rare disease therapeutic development. I can't give you the, the name of the author off the top of my head. It's a, a French or French Canadian name. And it sort of breaks it down because we're in a genetic age and you want to target the genetic, you know, potentially the, the genetic underpinning directly in a, in a focus. And, and, you know, further down for nonsense mutation, there's the label, you know, nonsense mutation read through. So, you know, that's been my hope for my kiddo. Um, but, you know, there, there's so much money going into, you know, manipulation of, of genetic mutation that hopefully there's, there's something for everybody soon. Why are collaborations so essential to advancing research in rare disease? Well, uh, first off, you know, it, for a PhD who's, who's looking to stay funded, keep the lab going, and, and build a real program, you can't do it just on cells uh, in the sense of, you know, ordering um, something off the shelf from a catalog uh, the way they, they would in the past and HeLa cells. And, and that just doesn't cut it. The NIH wants to see you working on a human sample because this has got to be translatable to, you know, human health improvement. So how does a PhD get samples from humans? They've, they've got to be connected, particularly when, let's say that there's, there's, there's 100 Syngap kids in, in the United States. Now, I'm going to just pull that out of the hat. How does a PhD in Southern California get, get access, you know, with all the hurdles of, of geography and, and a rare disease so the, the PhDs, the researchers, they need to be connected, whether it's a Bridge the Gap Foundation or a Genetic Epilepsy Foundation or, you know, for example, a dad that writes an email saying, Hi, Dr. Koba, my name is Hans Schlecht. I'm a, I'm a medical doctor. I've got a son who has a Syngap mutation. Would love to, to have a chat, you know, develop a conversation, start a conversation. And, and thankfully, you know, he, Dr. Kobach showed interest, and I hope down the road this really pays off for, for everybody involved. Um, so, so PhDs do need to be working on human tissue, human cells, human samples to really make their work appealing, translatable, fundable. Um, and for the rare disease patient, you know, whether it's a registry or a biobank where they sort of collect a sample and maybe freeze it, whether it's urine, blood, tissue, you name it. 
I, I mentioned that earlier as part of the Progeria Foundation. This gives a researcher a way to not just have one sample from one affected rare patient, but to maybe fill out the paperwork to get their hands on 15 samples from 15 different rare patients. So a biobank is, is another way that a rare disease patient can make a contribution and hopefully there's an, there's an eager, motivated researcher to leverage that resource towards no, new knowledge, new therapy, and so forth. And I'll just put in an example that I, I did about two months ago now, I want to say, uh, the end of July or so. The NIH has a brain biobank. And, you know, you can imagine uh, not too many people are, are signing up for this, but um, I did for my son. And, uh, you know, eventually, hopefully after a very long and, and enjoyable life uh, with lots of stinky and dirty cartoon time and whatever else he'll enjoy in the future, um, he's registered to donate his brain to science. And, you know, it's pretty bittersweet as a parent to fill that out. But for me, at least, with a scientific approach in my career and how I look at reality, it's important because, you know, a researcher says to me, what do we know about, you know, the cortical layers in Syngap? You know, maybe because I'm a dad and, and, a, and an MD, and I say, I don't think we know a darn thing. The only example I can think of is an autopsy study that was published in the New England Journal probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago, on children with um, autism. And these were, you know, parents and their kids that had registered for, uh, you know, a study. And whether it was a car accident or a drowning or what have you, these kids passed away. And the scientists could look at their brain architecture on the, the microscopic scale and say, look, this is compared to a, a routine brain, disorganized neuronal architecture, and X, Y, Z, you know, the, the details of, of layer five versus six. And, and, you know, that's a very meaningful insight into what the human brain for an autistic child has for its architecture microscopically. And A, you know, it advances the science. B, it debunks the idea that vaccines could have, you know, thrown off this brain development uh, years into life. And, you know, um, if my son can, can make a contribution that advances Syngap, we're going to make sure he does that safely. Collaborations can take many shapes and, and be of many different sizes. Nevertheless, successful ones share common qualities. What are some of the aspects necessary for a successful collaboration? 
Well, um, I'll, I'll try to use uh, Dr. Coban myself as an example. Now, this is sort of a smaller scale example versus, you know, what you may be referring to in terms of a, a, also a larger scale. So I try to be uh, very respectful to his time and his focus. I, I may have something to say, hey, Dr. Cobalt, what about this, that, or this? And, you know, he, he may give some positive feedback or some, you know, somewhat favorable feedback. I, I can't expect him to suddenly, you know, take a Ph.D. from his lab and put him on a project or, or change what he does fundamentally. It's, it's great to have his opinion and input. It's brilliant expertise that I don't have access to, and, and I have to acknowledge that he needs to have laser-like focus on what he's doing for the success of his career. So, for example, um, I, I've floated the idea of trying to find syngap in the blood as potentially like a diagnostic test, something that can be measured. So, you know, if, if my little guy before Adalurin had a level of X and then he starts Adalurin and you measure it again and it doubles 2X, then, wow, maybe the Adalurin's helping or, or it's promoting read-through. And, and Dr. Cobalt thought that, you know, this is interesting and, and uh, there's databases on the plasma proteins that have Syngap protein in that database that, you know, as evidence that it's in blood in plasma and thereby maybe it's measurable. So he, he thought the data was interesting and he, he thought it was quote unquote compelling. But I can't expect him to suddenly become a diagnostics developer. I can't say, oh, you've got to look at this then. That's, that's not what leads to the success of his career in lab. So I've got to go, you know, knocking on doors trying to find somebody who feels that it's also worth pursuing. So collaborations need to be respectful of, of, of each other's intent and, and not try to co-opt what the other is doing. So thankfully, you know, providing a sample to Dr. Koba, he's able to do what he does best with it. And, you know, whether it's every month or, or every six weeks, uh, an email to check in and say, hey, how's it going? You know, are, are you pleased with what you're seeing? Are you getting results and so forth? That's a, that's a respectful sort of up-to-date email that, you know, hopefully he gets back to and, you know, there's always something going on and obviously people have their personal lives too. Other collaborations, you know, on a bigger scale are, are tough to, um, give my own input on. The, the Bridge the Gap Foundation has a registry that um, my family has has contributed to and done as much as as we can. I have to admit I've sort of delegated that uh, to my wife, answering the the surveys on child development, and then I, I uploaded our our whole exome sequence to the registry, so that you know parents are contributing to the registry, so that. With a rare disease, 
as 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 much information is coming into a, a central collaboration, and we're fortunate to have that. What advice would you give other advocates about steps they could take to ensure that the efforts they make, the the data they help produce, the funding they provide, results in the the biggest bang for their their effort? Well. Um, I have to tell you, going to uh, a conference on rare disease, rare patient advocacy is, I think, incredibly important because, you know, where do you start? Where, where do you start? Um, you, you look at what Global Genes puts together for their agenda at, at you know, a, a regional seminar like uh, was held in May at the University of Pennsylvania around the corner, or you look at uh, the Global Genes event that's happening uh, the first week of October in Irvine, California, and you see some really crackerjack subjects for a person starting out, a person already in the community, a person trying to add another layer to what they're capable of in advocacy. And, and so I, I can't say enough on how important I think that is. And, and I'm not just trying to, you know, push that having spoken in May. I'm, I'm going in October, and I cannot wait to hear someone speak on biomarkers because and diagnostics because here's, here's an area where I want to push an idea and, and, I'm just not making headway. Um, so, so someone's going to speak on it, and I'll be in the first or second row and, and waiting to, to speak to that person, whether it's uh, questions at the end or, you know, grab the person and, and not let them out of the room till I, till I get a conversation going. These, these conferences are, are critically important because, and, and just to sort of go full cycle for what I mentioned earlier, you know, you go there with, with printed out one-page handouts on your story. Uh, so mine is very similar to what, you know, that, that brilliant family provided me. It's got a picture of my little guy and the family and a narrative and also his whole exome sequencing because that's really, you know, that's the kernel of, of, of what scientifically is going on with him. There's, of course, a whole lot more and, and development and so forth, but, but that's the fundamental issue. So you take your story, you go to this conference, you see who's talking, you, 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 you chat up everybody, you, you listen, and, and you try to banter back and forth, and um, that's where at least you can, you can set a foundation and, and walk away with, I think some 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 great learning and great skills uh, that you'll carry forward in in rare disease, rare patient advocacy, and that's something you then bring to your foundation. And you know we're lucky to have one for SynGap. If there isn't a foundation, they they talk about at these conferences how to set up a foundation, and it's it's clear that you know parents are you know, motivated like no other. So, 
So whether you have the disease, whether you're the parent of a disease, there has to be a foundation that's, that's a focal point. And, and I'll come back to that progeria research foundation, you know, discovering the gene, identifying it, coming up with a therapeutic that was FDA approved. There's, there's some incredible examples that, that can be a model for a person starting out um, to learn their field. Hans Schleck, physician and rare disease patient advocate. I should add motivated parent. Hans, thanks so much for your time. I, I hope that was helpful, Danny. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.